And I, I want to do something I've never, I can't remember doing it for at least for quite a while. I want to pray for people who need a financial breakthrough. And I'm not going to ask you to come down. And I don't want to embarrass you. There's nothing wrong with needing a financial breakthrough. But what I want you to do, I want you to raise your hand and I want the people around you just to reach a hand over and pray for you. Because you know what? God is your provider. And the Bible says, if we agree together as touching anything, it shall be done. So if you need a financial breakthrough, a job, a raise, I mean, you're between a rock and a hard place, raise your hand and I'm going to ask people all around you and we're going to pray together. And I want you just to reach out and touch them and pray for them and believe God. And let's agree together right now that God will give them a great and a mighty breakthrough. Father, we thank you right now for the power of God, the blessing of God. We thank you, Lord, that you are Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and provides. And right now, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who need that job, who have bills to pay, who have obligations to meet, who are between a rock and a hard place, who are feeling pressure and stress, who need that door to open, that window to open, that door to swing open. And we pray that, Lord, you will help them to find that ram caught in the thicket. The ram is coming up the other side of the hill. The ram is coming up the other side of the hill. And, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for a financial breakthrough on their life. And we agree together as touching that they will have that job. They will have that raise. They will have that breakthrough. They will have that favor. They will have it. And they do have it now, tonight. In the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. I believe God for that. I believe God for that. Amen. All of you that ever needed a job and God gave you one, raise your hand. I want those of you that are hurting, look around you. How many of you got a job the last month? Raise your hand. You got one the last month. All right, there are several. How many got one this week? Anybody? There's one back there. All right, good. God provides. And He's going to provide for you. All right. How many of you are ready to finish out 1 Peter 5 tonight? If you love the Word of God, let me hear an amen. I want to know. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. We've been looking at living for God, and uh, probably a little late to tell you this, but the notes are back there. I had a phone call today. Somebody was wondering about the notes. We never have a Wednesday night that we don't have notes. We want you to have, you know, paper never forgets. So we want you to have notes. So they're there every time. If you just go back there, the connection point, you can get them. Um, but now it's too late for tonight. Grab them when you're done. Okay. But we're looking tonight at something very, very important, dealing with the devil. I want to ask you a question. Anybody dealt with the devil yet this year? Really? I got the victory. So we're going to pray right now. This is powerful stuff. We're going to learn what Peter is writing to the saints who are under persecution by a demonized emperor, Nero. And we're going to see what he told him about fighting the devil. God wants you to have the victory. He wants you to have more than victory. He leads us in 
triumph in Christ Jesus. And guess what? You're not just a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. So let's pray together, and then we're going to look at this. Father, we know we have an adversary. We know we have an enemy. Lord, there are people here tonight and listening by radio fighting a vicious fight, fighting for their marriages, fighting for their morality, fighting against a destructive habit, fighting against renegade thoughts, fighting against a pull, a lure, a temptation. I pray that tonight you will strengthen us in our inner man. Give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding in order to defeat the adversary and win. And I thank you, Lord, that we're going to leave with something we can use tomorrow morning immediately in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before you're seated, read this with me real good and loud. And then I'm going to let you sit down, okay? Read it like you're preaching to me. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Good stuff. You can be seated. Thank you. Woo, boy, I'll tell you, that crawled all over me in a good way. Amen. I love the Word of God. Now, let's look at this. Um, Peter knew all about the attacks of Satan, didn't he? In the courtyard of the high priest's house, after bragging that he would never deny Jesus, what did he do? He three times denied the Lord with Jesus looking on, once with cursings, the third time. He came under a power. He came under a, uh, experienced a weakness in the, in the moment of temptation. The Lord had warned him by showing him how to protect himself from the enemy, but he had failed to pay heed. With the shadow of the cross enveloping the Lord, the disciples had fallen into an argument about who would be the greatest. When you're arguing about that, you need to know a fall is not far away. I'd love to hear an argument about who can be the greatest servant. That'd be a great argument. But they were talking about who's going to be the greatest. Well, of course, pride was fueling that argument. And the Lord had put a stop to that, warning Peter, Simon, Simon, guess what? Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now what gets me is Jesus didn't stop the devil, did he? He didn't say, but Peter, I've bound him so he can't do that to you, did he? He said, no, son, you're headed into a battle and I'm praying for you. Sift as wheat's powerful. Uh, it's a powerful picture and that farmer would have a pitchfork and he would thrust it into a pile of grain and hurl it up into the air and the wind would blow the shaft off the seed. It was a violent tossing. That's what he meant here. He's going to toss you 
Peter, you're going to be sifted like a grain of wheat. And you know what? When you come back down, when you hit the ground again, all the external shaft, the outer shell of flesh and self-will and all of that is going to be blown away. Now, look what Jesus said. But I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you have returned to me, Peter, you're going to backslide, he's telling him. But when you come back, you're going to strengthen your brethren. What a powerful word. I could park right there and preach the rest of the night. We've got to move on. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, a short while later, wasn't long before the Lord put into Peter's hand the spiritual weapon that he needed to win the battle that he was about to confront and face, he said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Because here's the deal, Peter, the Spirit's willing, but your flesh is oh so weak. How many of you have realized that's true? Your spirit, you're always wanting to do the right thing, but you've got this old flesh around you, and it never wants to do the right thing. So, the only way to stay strong is watch and pray. Now, these things may very well have been on Peter's mind as he wrote these closing words. He considered the weary saints under Nero's persecution. We talked about that persecution last time. It was terrible, horrible. It wasn't the worst of the persecutions. It was the first emperor of ten, Diocletian being the last one, that would viciously persecute Christians only because they were Christians. Nero was bad enough, and he's writing to these Christians who are feeling the heat. They're feeling the heat. Friends, family are being killed, murdered by this psychopathic, demonized monster. They're feeling the heat for walking with Christ. He says, be sober. Be vigilant. Keep your wits about you. Be watchful of what is going on around you. Don't go to sleep. Don't check out. Don't phase out. Stay in the Word. Stay in prayer. Because you've got an enemy. Okay? We have an enemy, and ultimately it's not Nero. That's not the enemy or any other human being. We, we know what Paul wrote, but it does good to read it again. He said, guess what? You're not wrestling against your, your husband or your wife or your children or that boss or those persecutors. Not ultimately, not at its root. It's not flesh and blood, but it's principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now that's giving us the hierarchy, the satanic hierarchy, the way that Satan has established his demonic, his satanic control over those angels that fell with him. Now, having read that verse, let me ask you a question. Having read this verse, would you doubt that there was a real devil? Would you ever doubt there was a real devil having read that verse? Would you come away from that going, well, I don't really believe there's a real devil. He's speaking figuratively. He's speaking metaphorically. There's not a real devil. You say, well, how could you possibly come away with that? Ah, well, in a recent poll taken by George Barna, four out of ten Christians, think about this, strongly agreed with the statement that Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. Forty percent of professing Christians. Now, it gets worse before it gets better. An additional, an additional two out of ten Christians, 19 percent, 
said that they agreed somewhat with that perspective. So you've got only a minority of Christians that were polled by Barna indicating that they believe Satan is real. No, he's a symbol of evil. That's, that's old Bible talk. That's first century talk. They believed in ghosts and goblins and ghouls and spirits and sprites and all these things and the trees and all of that. But that's not real today. This is stunning evidence that far too many Christians are not developing their beliefs around the teaching of Scripture. Now, extrapolate what the majority believe that Satan's not real. Extrapolate that to the end. The belief that Satan is not real, but just a symbol of evil, casts the entire Bible in a doubtful light. How can you say you don't believe Satan's real, but you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? It makes the life of Jesus, as depicted in Scripture, untrue and places much of the Bible in the category of metaphor, fairy tale, or myth. How can you do that? You're not getting your theology, your belief system, from the Bible. To your own loss and defeat. Because if it's wrong here, how do you know it's not wrong there? If that's not true, then how do you know that's true? If what it tells you here is wrong, then how do you know this over here and wrong too? Especially when you're in the hour of temptation. And Satan's saying to you, hey, go ahead, there's nothing wrong with it. You have a real crisis on your hands. Because you can't go to the Word of God and say, ah, but the Bible says, because you've already said part of it's not true. Remember the Bible says this about itself. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, hey, all of it. Old and new, it's all inspired by God. God breathed, theonoustos, breathed out of the nostrils of God, breathed out by God. So what is the truth about Satan? Exactly what Scripture plainly tells us. That's the truth about Satan. And, and the reason I'm going into this subject, this basic, is because I know there are people listening by radio and in here people are going to get this CD who really haven't gotten clear about the whole issue of spiritual warfare. They don't know what they're fighting and they're losing and they're being defeated. Now, I'm going to give you a principle. I want you to always remember this. When seeking to understand anything in Scripture, the golden rule of interpretation is this one. Remember this, write it down, get these notes, because all of you have got to know and understand how to interpret the Bible, because you all read the Bible. So here we go. Golden rule, quote, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages indicate clearly otherwise. That is just that simple. In other words, it means what it says and says what it means. If the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, don't go seeking any other sense. So if the Bible says Satan, devil, demon, why would you want to make anything else of it than its literal sense? If it's a metaphor or an analogy or a myth or a fable 
or just trying to make an illustrative point, it would tell you that. But no. Remember that right there. Because all around us, we hear false teaching all the time. People who have not taken Scripture uh, the way that it's taught. Now, with this simple guideline in mind, the Bible's voluminous teaching about Satan couldn't be more clear. It's totally clear. Ezekiel 28, 12 to 17. Let me give you a couple of examples. Provides a stunning description of Lucifer. He was the chief archangel before he fell. He later became Satan following his heart being filled with pride. And he said, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to ascend up into heaven and be like God. And God took him and hurled him down. He was hurled down to earth. Jesus Christ said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus said that. He was hurled to the ground. He lost his glory, lost his place with God, became a disembodied spirit. He's presented as the chief archangel, the very apex of all creation at that time. God says of him through Ezekiel, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In the New Testament, Paul describes him as an angel of light. He doesn't approach you and me in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork and horns coming out of his head. He approaches as your answer, your solution, your savior, your provider. And he invariably offers an illegitimate answer to a legitimate need. It was not a snake that beguiled Eve. You know what it was? A spectacular fallen being who was persuasive to the hilt using the body of a serpent. Ezekiel further calls him the anointed cherub that covers or guards. I would encourage you to read the the whole passage that I gave you in Ezekiel about the enemy, the devil, Satan, Lucifer. But he called him the anointed cherub that covers or guards. He ministered in the very presence of God, this devil. That's why I know that's why he hates worship. Because he'll never be able to worship again, nor does he want to. But he used to be, are you ready? The chief worshiper. There is evidence that before his fall, he was the choir master of heaven. The chief musician. The one who led the anthems of the angels and the worship of God. Where do you get that? Ezekiel writes... In 28, verse 13, the work, talking about Lucifer, the workmanship of your tablets and pipes was prepared in you the day you were created. Tablets are either tambourines or drum-like instruments. And pipes probably refers to tubes used to produce tones by blowing air through them as in an organ or a horn. This shows us that the devil quite possibly had the makings of percussion instruments and wind instruments built into his very being. He was the chief worshiper, the chief musician, spectacularly powerful, spectacularly beautiful, spectacularly awesome. Never sell short your enemy. He was incredible. No wonder. It's easy to understand how the Bible would say he was, his heart was lifted up with pride over his beauty. 
And that's what made him want to ascend to the throne room of God and overthrow him. Because he said, you're no better than me. But he was created. God wasn't. Even in his fallen estate, remember this, even in his fallen estate, despite the fact he's now described as the serpent, the devil, Satan, the evil one, he retains the tattered remnant of a former greatness and glory and still wields enormous power, never doubt it. That's why you can't fool with the devil. You can't open the door a crack. He'll kick it in. I'm going to be honest with you tonight. Thank God Jesus defeated him because we never would have. Jesus did, but we never would have. If you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. If you dance around the flame, he'll push you in it. If you go off into sin messing with the devil, you'll go further than you thought you would and stay longer than you thought you should. His wisdom, though now warped, bent, and twisted, is still formidable. You and I could never defeat him on our own. He would have you checkmated at every turn. You would never defeat him on your own. But you can defeat him through Christ. Thank God for the power of the one who lives within us. But if you don't have Christ living in your heart, you're not walking in the Word of God, you are hamburger meat for the devil. He'll chew you up. Paul lifts the veil into the spirit world even further in the book of Ephesians. Tells us some things we'd have never known. We find described in Ephesians a, a host of spirit beings that stood with Lucifer in his rebellion against God. In the beginning, they too were good and they were glorious. These were angels, spirit beings. They came from God's hand. They took their place around God's throne. They sang God's praises. These that are now demon spirits sang the praises of God, did the bidding of God. Until their chief said, follow me, let's overthrow him. I'll rule. Yet when Lucifer rebelled, these heavenly hosts were divided, split. And it says in the scriptures that uh, many of the angels, at least a third of them, fell with Lucifer. We're, we see that in the book of Revelation. Fell with Lucifer and they were also <clears throat> cast out of heaven. They became disembodied spirits. They lost their place with God. And Satan is now their Lord. They don't answer to God. They answer to the chief among them, Satan, the devil. The Bible calls these fallen angels demons, unclean spirits, and devils. Hardly just symbols of evil. While Satan wields enormous power, he is not omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful. And he's not omnipresent everywhere at once like God is. And that irks him. Because he can't be God. He can't be God. Now, in light of that lack, that shortcoming, he seeks to compensate for his lack of God-like qualities by organizing the countless fallen beings who share power with him in the spirit world. This is what's revealed to us in Ephesians. The hierarchical structure of Satan's kingdom. Spiritual wickedness in high place, rulers, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness. A four-tier hierarchical kingdom. They gather information. They influence events. You better know it. 
They inflict, uh, they, they implement Satan's schemes. We call them satanic assignments. Uh, they inflict woe and bondage on the human race. And they laugh at man's blindness in refusing to believe that such beings exist. They love it when you don't believe in them. You look at this, this young man, his mugshot, who wrought that havoc in Arizona a couple of weeks ago. Have you ever, I mean, I looked at that mugshot and I said, demonized. Yeah, mentally off, oh, for sure. Psychopathic, for sure. But there's an element there. See, we've got to understand, he said you're not fighting flesh and blood. You're not fighting Mr. Loeffner. You're not fighting flesh and blood. At the core, there is a spiritual influence. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, here's our problem with this. If you go back in history, you go back to about the middle of the 18th century, mid-1700s, there was an intellectual movement called the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason. And the Age of Reason bequeathed a message to the West. And we're in the West. The Age of Reason said this, said, if you can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, or hear it, it's not real. If you can't prove it in a laboratory, if you can't prove it by your senses, then it's not there. And if you take the impact of the intellectual movement called the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, it had some good things. A part of the Declaration of Independence, you can see traces of Enlightenment thinking in there, and, and it wasn't all bad, but the gist of it was this. We no longer believe in a world we can't see, taste, touch, smell, or feel. If, if, we, can't, if we can't arrive at its reality in the laboratory or through our senses, then it's not real. And that was a wrong conclusion. Because you go back beyond the Enlightenment, back before the Enlightenment took place, those folks knew there was another world. And so people in our day say, well, I don't believe all that stuff. I don't believe in angels or demons or, or a God. The, the Enlightenment led the West into atheism, Darwinism, Marxism. All of those have touches and traces and earmarks of enlightenment thinking but but church god has opened our eyes and either the bible's true or it's not and the bible tells us there is a world that you can't see unless it reveals itself to you or taste or touch or smell or feel but it's there so the enemy loved enlightenment thinking the age of reason Bottom line, the human race this very moment is under attack. The, culp the culprit is the fallen archangel, Lucifer, along with his hordes of fallen angels. Right now, this, I mean, does it take a rocket scientist to see this world's under attack? Come on. Demonic activity on every side. These enemies of mankind, the devil and his legions of devils or demons, they inflict pain, they inspire violence, they spread sickness and disease, they incite mankind to rioting, rebellion, war, hatred, greed, lust, and fear. They are ultimately the force behind the drug trade, behind pornography, behind cults, and any other thing destructive to men. You say, where do you get that? Jesus said, 
The enemy came not but to kill, steal, and destroy. And everything I named up there, and that's just a few things, destroy people. Give me another example real quick. Um, if you had been in London in the 1700s or so, they experienced the plague. People were dropping like flies, dropping dead like flies. And they could not figure out what was wrong. They thought it was in the air. So what they did, they would grab a big bunch of flowers and stuff them in their face so they would only smell the aroma from the flowers and hopefully uh, filter out any of the outside air because they thought they were getting the plague from the air. They, they hid in their houses, shut the doors, pulled shades down over the windows and protected themselves from this dreadful plague. If you could transport yourself back there tonight and say to them, oh, I know what the problem is. It's a, it's a microscopic bacteria. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't hear it. You can't feel it. You can't taste it. It's tasteless. It's odorless. But I tell you it's there. They would say, oh, come on. Same thing with satanic activity. You can't see it, taste it, touch it, but you can look around you and see people dropping, see death, tumult, war, blood, insanity, demonic activity, satanic actions and thoughts. The good news is Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. <clears throat> He came to destroy, Hebrews tells us, him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Not only did he come to destroy the devil's works, he came to destroy the devil. Satan's works were destroyed at Calvary, and his power was destroyed in the cemetery when Jesus got up from the dead. Now in chapter 5, Peter tells the saints that Satan, like an invisible predator, is on the prowl. Listen carefully, church. He's our adversary, the devil. The word for adversary is antidikos, antidikos, antidikos. That's the word. And its primary meaning is of an opponent in a law case. This is one of Satan's activities. He's called in Scripture the accuser of the brethren. He's the prosecutor of your soul. Antidikos. We see in the sufferings of Job how Satan accused Job to God. And guess what? He's too clever to go into the presence of God and tell lies about you. All he's got to do is tell the truth about you. Come on, church. He's just got to go tell the truth about you and me. But guess what? The good news is we've also got an advocate. We, we've got an adversary, but we've got an advocate. And the advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, the, the adversary comes and says, did you see what they did today? Did you hear what they said? Did you see what they thought? Did you, did you follow their steps today, God? You know where they went, what they did, what they thought, how unchristlike it was at that moment when they got mad in rush hour traffic or at work or whatever. And right then, your advocate says, wash in my blood, forgiven by my blood, justified, sanctified, glorified. And your advocate defeats your adversary every time. Woo, boy, I tell you, that's good stuff. Now, 
But if anybody should sin, John wrote, we have an advocate, one who will intercede for us with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. And he's not only our advocate with the Father, our legal representative at the throne of God, but he's our great high priest. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He's touched. Let me tell you who's not touched. The devil. When you're down, he'll kick you harder. When you're an inch from death, he'll finish the job. He doesn't care about the tears of a child. He doesn't care about the weeping of a broken heart. He has no empathy, no sympathy, no compassion, no love, no mercy, no kindness. He's hard-hearted death. Even so, we must be sober and vigilant, Peter says. The enemy bides his time. He'll work on you 20 years to bring about your fall. According to Peter, he wants to devour us. Here, let me show you some of these words. The word for devil is diabolos. This powerful Greek word means slanderer. As Satan, he is your adversary. As the devil, he's your accuser. That diabolos literally means to hurl accusations at you with such force they penetrate you. He accuses you. Peter says that he walks about. You can just picture him like a wild animal, a graphic picture of restless energy. He walks about. He's looking for somebody he can devour. What's, you say, what's the devil doing? He's walking about. What's he walking about for? Because he's looking for somebody vulnerable that he can eat alive. The word used is katapino, katapino, and it means to swallow. Now let me show you where it's used. The same word is used to describe the doom of the Egyptian army when its cavalry pursued the Hebrews across the bed of the Red Sea. Remember they were going across this? Here's the glistening water on either side. And when the last Hebrews stepped over and they were all on the other side, Moses lowered that staff, that rod, and that wall of water came in on them and swallowed them up. Same word. Same word. So the enemy doesn't want to give you a flat tire or make something go bump in the night. He wants to swallow you alive like you had drowned. Wipe you out. That's his motivation. They were drowned, katapino. They were swallowed up, Hebrews tells us. Not only that, but Peter says the devil is as a roaring lion. You know the word for roaring there is from a Greek word meaning to howl. He's, like, he's walking about, looking for somebody to eat alive, howling. Makes you want to get as far from him as you can, doesn't it? He's howling. It occurs in the New Testament only here, that word howl, that Greek word. It suggests the howl of a wild beast when it's hungry. He's walking about, looking for somebody to devour, to swallow alive. And he's howling. That's the devil. I want you to know the truth about your enemy. That's the devil. You see drug addicts out there on the street, they're being swallowed alive. You look at people caught up in some kind of sin nobody knows about, or maybe people do know about it, they're being swallowed alive. And what is standing over them? A howling devil. 
So Peter divests the devil with animal-like savage characteristics. The bottom line, our foe is not to be taken lightly. You know, I hear people say, oh, the devil, and they laugh about him. Don't ever laugh about the devil. There's nothing funny about the devil. Don't be flipping about the devil. Don't give him any room. Make no opportunity, no place, give no place to the devil. That's what it says. Don't give him any place, not a crack in the door. Don't open it up to say, who's there? Because if you do, he takes land. Okay? Now, here's warring with the roaring lion. Peter tells us that in our war with the roaring lion, we've got to offer unyielding resistance. How do you defeat the devil? You offer unyielding resistance. He says, read this with me, whom resist? Steadfast in the faith. Let's try it again. I want you to remember this. Whom resist? Steadfast in the faith. Who's the whom? The devil. How do you do it? Resist him. How? Steadfast. In what? The faith. Resist comes from the Greek word. A lot of Greek words tonight, but I love words. You know I love words. And they tell a story. You know what this word is? Resist. Amphistami. Amphistami, which means to push back. What word do you think we get in English that's from amphistami? Antihistamine. Good girl. Was that you? That's my wife. Hallelujah. We get antihistamine from that word. Amphistamine. What does it mean? We get the English word antihistamine from this Greek word. And antihistamine, here's what it does. It pushes back against histamine, which is what causes the inflammatory response in your body during an allergic reaction. It's the histamine that causes you to be inflamed or flamed up, the sore throat, everything, the drainage, all that mess, all right? Now, the antihistamine gets in there and pushes the histamine back. In spiritual warfare, the idea is that we are to oppose, push back against the evil one. Not in our own strength, but by yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are to say, no way, I'm resisting you, pushing you back, steadfast in my faith you're not taking another step you're not coming another inch in fact i'm taking my stand and i'm pushing back i'm taking my stand and i'm pushing back you don't lay down and let the devil run over you you stand and you push back resist him and we're also to keep in mind that we're not alone in our battle. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. If you're experiencing it, somebody else is as well. Paul echoes the same thought in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is taking you, but such as is rare. No, common to man. The devil's one of his best tricks is to make you feel like you're all alone. Nobody has experienced what you are, he'll get you to pull that violin out and play away. Oh, I'm suffering uniquely. Nobody's ever suffered like I'm suffering. Nobody is as weak with this thing as I am. You know what Peter says? No, no, I hate to pop your bubble. It's being experienced by the saints all over the world. You're not alone. 
You're not alone or unique in your struggles, temptations, and trials. Any attack you experience has been felt by people all over the world. It's common to man. And on top of that, remember that Jesus himself has been tempted in all points as we are. That's how he can sympathize and empathize with you and me. He understands exactly what it feels like. Winning over the roaring lion. Can you all take a little bit more? Well, that was underwhelming. You want to stop here or go on and, and take a little bit more? Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm just kidding with you. You wouldn't be here tonight if you didn't love the Word of God and didn't want to hear it. I know that. This, this last part is really some of the best part. Peter now draws the attention of his embattled readers to three things. First, to God and His grace. But the God of all grace, who has called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. The God of some grace, a little bit of grace, no, all grace. Peter's message is that God's grace is available for every need you've got. And now what he told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. We have grace for living. We have grace for dying. Grace to deal with the penalty of sin and grace to overcome the power of sin. Grace to face persecution and grace to forgive the persecutor. Grace to see us through and grace to see us home. You are being upheld, and so am I tonight, by amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Man, you'd have been dead a long time ago, but for the grace of God, so would I. Do you know that's true? All right. Next, Peter speaks of God and his goal in your suffering. God's got a goal in your suffering. He says, after. Everybody say after. So there's an after coming. After you have suffered how long? A while. It's not going to last forever. We're going through the valley. We're not pitching tent there. He will do what? Read it with me. Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now that, that's what God's got in mind for your suffering. I want you to look at those four verbs again. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you when, after, you've suffered for a while. What's a testimony? When you've been tested and done some moaning. It's true. Okay, now watch. Here's a fact. God uses suffering to discipline and to develop us. There are some aspects of your character in Christ that are never going to be developed without some suffering. And your suffering can make you or break you. Same sun that melts butter hardens clay. You can either melt in the presence of God or harden your heart and walk away and get mad and pout and not change. Joseph was able to say to his betraying brothers, I know you thought evil against me. You would have killed me. You didn't care if I lived or died. But God meant it for good. Joseph said, you sold me, but God sent me. Peter goes on to reveal that in the presence of suffering, there's a process with God. First, he says, after you have suffered a while, after you have suffered a while, God draws lines in the sand with the devil, with our suffering, over which he will not allow the enemy to cross. He says, after you have suffered for a while. That's telling us God's got his hand on the dial. 
He's the one regulating the temperature. And he's not going to let you die over it. No. His hand is on the temperature dial and the time involved. He said a while, not forever, a while. Suffering has its God-given limitations. Now, Peter also reveals that in our suffering there is a prospect. That means a hope, something that you can look forward to. And he says he, God intends it to make you perfect. Well, I can't be perfect, neither can you. So that's not what the word means. The word for perfect means to arrange, to set in order, to adjust. It's used of James and John mending their nets. Perfect. Perfect. By God's grace, we are saved. That's a fact. But there remains much mending to be done in our torn and tattered lives. See, you got saved, but your soul was a mess. There is so much junk and garbage in your brain from living in this world without the Word of God. And so many flaws in our character God's got to fix. But He says, you know what? Part of the way you're going to be perfected or mended or arranged together is in suffering. God's going to use it. As a tailor uses a needle to make a way for the thread, so God uses suffering in our lives to make way for the perfecting, the mending of our souls. Next, Peter says that God will also establish us. The same word is used to describe Jesus steadfastly setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Establish. That means set. He will set you. Establish you. Jesus was undeterred, absolutely resolute in his purpose to perfect God's will. God is just this resolute in forming us into the image of his Son. He will sanctify us. And listen, Simon Peter one day was a denier. He was as unstable as water. But the day came when Peter was a rock. What had happened? He had been established. How did he get there? Suffering. And says Peter, God will strengthen you. This is the last verb. It's a great one. The word is in the future tense. And it reveals God's promise to strengthen us for all things that confront us in this life. As your days, so shall your strength be. Before the trial arrives, God's already sent the strength. That's what he's saying. Finally, says Peter, God will settle us. This comes from the Greek word meaning to ground us or to settle us on a firm foundation. How many of you want to be settled? Yeah. These four verbs, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle, describe our security in Christ. No matter how fierce the storm, in all of your suffering, he says, here's what's going to happen to you in that suffering. I'm going to perfect you. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to settle you. And you're going to come out a rock. That's what he's saying. He's working out his will even in our sufferings. He closes. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can we stand together? <clears throat> Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Glory to God. Glory to God. You know, without naming any names, I see people in here tonight who 
as their pastor, I've walked through suffering with them, of many different kinds of suffering. And it always amazes me how the saints of God come out like gold on the other side of suffering. They come out like gold. When even the doctors are saying, well, that's it. No. They come out like gold. And the doctors start going, well, the only thing I can attribute this to is somebody prayed. I see them go through the hardest stuff. They come out like gold. Isn't God good? Let's thank Him. Father, we praise You and we thank You for the marvelous word from Peter who was moved on by the Holy Ghost. We thank You for this message from the Spirit of God. I pray for those that are suffering. Those that are suffering in the house tonight, who are suffering, radio listeners listening, suffering in a torn up marriage suffering on the other side of a divorce suffering from some physical affliction cancer, heart disease suffering, feeling alone, lonely I pray that the fingers of the Holy Spirit will reach down reach through that radio or reach down in this sanctuary right now and wrap themselves around the heart of the sufferer and give them hope that God is still working. In Jesus' name. Let's sing one stanza before we go. Go ahead, Joe.